The following was recorded at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Combing through the evidence today, Wednesday, April 17th, this is The World. I'm Aaron Schachter sitting in for Marco Werman. Here in Boston, the investigation into Monday's bombings heats up. We're expecting a press conference later. Meanwhile, security officials in London are bracing for their own marathon on Sunday. They'll do everything they can to stop the kind of thing that happened in Boston. But of course, you, you can't legislate for a lone individual when you've got crowds of several thousands on the streets. You just can't search everything. Also today, tourniquets make a comeback, how they work and why they saved so many lives on Monday. And an advocate for amputees provides solace and hope to survivors of the Boston attack. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston, this is The World. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Aaron Schachter in Boston, and this is The World. There may be a break in the Boston Marathon bombing investigation. There are several reports that authorities have a lead on a suspect in the case. That lead reportedly came from a security camera outside a department store near the finish line. The world's Arun Roth is following the developments. And Arun, it's been... uh kind of a crazy day today. What are you hearing? Yeah, it's been kind of a confusing afternoon. We've been hearing conflicting reports uh, all day long. Uh, One thing that seems to be fairly certain that everyone seems to be able to agree on is that they do have, they have identified somebody, a suspect, uh, in two images that were on video. Uh, Now, we had heard that they had gone so far, some news sources were saying that someone had been arrested, and that has now been denied by both the FBI and sources in the Justice Department are saying, no, there has absolutely not been an arrest, but it seems like there is a suspect that they have an image of, and there's somebody they're looking for, apparently. Any other evidence uh, turning up today? Yeah, the other thing that we had, uh, we'd heard a little bit yesterday about the type of the device that was used in the explosions, this uh, pressure cooker bomb. And today there was actually a, a bulletin, a leaked bulletin from the FBI, which we were able to see some pictures of that. You may have seen them online. Uh, they're basically these deformed, blast deformed parts of the, the canister and uh, what looks like a circuit board and uh, parts of the nylon uh, backpack or bag that was it was contained in. Any more indication of what the the bomb might have been? No, it still looks like it's this pressure cooker device, which, again, doesn't give too much of an indication. It's been used all around the world, so it doesn't really tell us an awful lot. Right. Now, at the same time as this investigation is developing, there are uh, other stories of another incident that uh, you've said reminds you of the weeks after 9-11. Yeah, it's it's sort of hard not to think about that when, when there's, uh, you know, we have envelopes with uh, deadly poison being delivered to uh, to Capitol Hill, which is what would happen. Uh, people on Capitol Hill are very rattled by... Uh, there have been a couple of letters. One's gone to President Obama, one to a Republican congressman uh, that have been uh, laced with uh, ricin, which is a poison. Uh, obviously, that makes people remember the anthrax attacks back in 2001. Ricin, however, it's, you know, you might say that the bombs were unsophisticated this time in terms of, of the, the ones that were used in the, in the bombing on Monday. Ricin is actually, it's a very primitive, very easy to make sort of poison. It's not like anthrax that only very few people might have access to. So, it's sort of hard to uh, to say who's behind that, too. 
And any thoughts on when we're likely to get um, more answers today on either of these investigations? Well, the Ryson one is probably going to be ongoing. They're, they're still checking into some suspicious pa- suspicious letters and packages. They still have to confirm, do a test to confirm that these are the Ryson poison, although it seems pretty likely that they are. Um, and the FBI is saying that they have no indication that the two things are linked, although they're not saying that they have any indication they're not linked either. At 5 o'clock today, we will have a new press conference from law enforcement as far as the Boston bombings go, and we should have some more detail then about what we actually know about the suspect. Right, and we'd expected for a little while that we would get the name of a suspect. That's what it sounded like, but they definitely seem to be dialing back from that now. Okay, Arun Roth, thank you so much. Thanks. Now, if you've seen pictures or video from Monday's bombings in Boston, and sadly, who hasn't, you've probably seen that bystanders and first responders used crude tourniquets to staunch the bleeding of some victims. It's a simple age-old medical intervention that's seen a resurgence in use on the battlefield in recent years. But for much of the 20th century, the tourniquet was out of favor. Here's the world's Alex Galifant. The modern tourniquet is a simple but sophisticated device. These, these tourniquets uh, come very small. They actually take up a space probably about five inches by two inches. That's Jim Sedaris, a nurse and emergency medic in South Dakota. And what it is, is it's a long piece of Velcro about an inch and a half wide. And you put this around the uh, extremity, preferably as, as low as you can to the injury. And then you secure it down with this Velcro. And then there's a small windlass, which almost looks like a pencil, and it will tighten up this Velcro strap around the extremity, and then the bleeding will actually stop. The tourniquet has a long history. There's evidence that long ago, people used rudimentary tourniquets to treat snake bites. Then, as the understanding of human veins and arteries developed, the tourniquet became common in the treatment of battlefield injuries. But over the last century, the tourniquet fell out of favor. The people that write the books are the surgeons. John Craig is a tourniquet specialist at the U.S. Army Institute for Surgical Research in Texas. He's an orthopedic surgeon himself, but he says during the two world wars, it was surgeons far from the battlefield, in London, for example, who decried the tourniquet as the instrument of the devil. They saw the complications in survivors. The surgeons of the day sometimes attributed problems to tourniquets being applied for days at a stretch, the time it took for an injured soldier to be transported home. What they didn't see were those soldiers who bled to death without a tourniquet before they could get to a doctor. In any case, the reputation of tourniquets was tarnished for generations. That held until Baghdad. It held until Baghdad. And the main thing was the, uh, there was an absence of evidence in that there was not a large case of numbers. You know, somebody saw one or two or six, and they made their opinions based on that. They didn't see hundreds. John Craig did. In 2005, he was based in the emergency room of the U.S. Combat Support Hospital in Baghdad. It was a very uh, big and busy uh, trauma center. The data on tourniquets started to pile up. Over basically six months, we had 232 or something like that. And we had cases that needed them and didn't get them, and they died. And everybody that got them did pretty good, and they had a survival rate that was in the high 80s. Now every member of the U.S. Army that's deployed, Craig says is issued with a tourniquet. Not just the medics, everybody is trained to use them. Eight years on from 2005, the state of tourniquet knowledge is even further along. There's a variety of devices and extensive literature on timing, placement, and appropriate pressure. And in cities across the U.S., including Boston, there are doctors, nurses, and first responders with battlefield experience from Iraq and Afghanistan.
They know how to use tourniquets. As for the rest of us, well, we can fashion improvised tourniquets. News accounts suggest that some bystanders did that in Boston on Monday, helping the injured. Sometimes even a makeshift tourniquet is better than nothing. Still, says South Dakota medic Jim Sedaris. The most important thing for a person to use is their phone to call 911. Don't waste time, he advises. Get help. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. We've got a video of emergency medic Jim Sedaris demonstrating two types of tourniquets. It's at theworld.org. As we know, many of those injured on Monday at the Boston Marathon lost a limb. Dick Trom knows quite a bit about that. Trom lost a leg in an automobile accident when he was 24. It was only then that he began running. Trom finished the marathon in Boston this past Monday. He ran with 35 fellow amputees, all members of Achilles International, the group he founded that supports disabled runners from around the world. I lost my leg in 1965, so this is almost 50 years ago, and it's an experience that is devastating. It's hard to imagine, you know, you'll never be walking on two legs, and the question is, well, what what do I do from here? And what do you do? Well, basically, I, you know, got out of the hospital. I got an artificial leg. I learned to walk. I learned to move around and went back to work. Now, uh, you didn't just uh, learn to walk again. You went on to become the first amputee to run the New York City Marathon. Um, What do you think other people might not understand about what it's like to be an amputee and an athlete? It it wasn't as easy as that. An associate of mine noticed that I wobbled and I was too fat and suggested I join a YMCA, which I did. And in those days, the game was that you had to run or they wouldn't permit you to to do the good stuff, which was the push-ups and the sit-ups. So they said, can you run? So I said, sure. And I figured out how to move, which if you can imagine uh, trying to cross a street with a uh, uh, cast on your leg. So it's a hop and a skip. And I figured out how to do that. And over a period of time, I built up to where I could, could go for 15 minutes without stopping. And this is like, you know, a mile. And holy smokes, you know, a guy on one leg running a mile, that's unbelievable. And you were now, running with a prosthetic. With yes. a group on my prosthetic leg. And, and I have a what you call a type A personality. So the question is, if you can do a mile, can you do two miles? And to make a long story short, a year and a half later, I ran the uh, 1976 New York City Marathon uh, on my artificial leg. And uh, unbeknownst to me, I uh, became the first person ever uh, to... Uh, to participate in an event like that, to do the distance. Wow. After, How long did that take you? It took me seven hours and 24 minutes. Well, that's pretty good. Well, it's okay, but it, it, I was proud of it. So, so given all that you've accomplished, what do you say to those people who, um, who lost their legs on Monday? Well, I'm saying that it's a, a difficult situation, but it's one that uh, you can come back with. Uh, we have many amputees uh, who are veterans. We have actually over 500 disabled veterans with Achilles. In fact, I, I have a wonderful honor of being able to go over to Walter Reed and I'll meet someone who's three or four weeks out of Afghanistan and I'll, I'll ask them, are you running the New York City Marathon? They look at me like a Twilight Zone experience. They say, sir, I just lost my leg. I can't, I can't walk. 
And I said, oh, that's okay. And then we get him into a hand crank wheelchair. These are all athletes. And they pick it up. And the next question is, how far can I go and where can I race? If I can do one mile, then I can do two and so on. You got it. Looking back now, you told us that you're at the bedside of a lot of soldiers and others who have just discovered that um, they've lost limbs. How did it yes, feel? Yes, that's correct. How, how did it feel to you back then? And um, I imagine you can understand the people now. Well, it's devastating. But, you know, as I've gotten older, uh, I feel more for the parents and for the, the wives and the children than I do for the uh, individual. Why is that? It's just, I guess, as I've gotten older, I see it from a different perspective. You know, and I see it from, oh, gee, my goodness gracious, if my son had lost a leg, I would have, you know, felt more badly about it than having done it myself, having lost it myself. And, you know, what I am there to do is to say, hey, uh, just because you've lost a leg doesn't mean that you need to give up. Dick Trom, founder of Achilles International, a nonprofit that supports disabled runners around the world. He ran the Boston Marathon this past Monday, and he will do it again next year. Dick, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. We have more on the coverage of the Boston bombings at our website, theworld.org. And just a note here about the third person identified as a victim of the Boston attacks on Monday. She was a young Chinese grad student at Boston University. Like the other victims, she was watching the race near the finish line when the bombs went off. There's been an outpouring of grief on the Chinese version of Twitter, Weibo. Many posted digital candles in her honor. But a few others posted less sympathetic comments. Some expressed resentment of families who were wealthy enough to buy their kids expensive American educations. But that apparently didn't describe this young student. Time magazine quoted a friend and fellow Chinese student saying that they're both, quote, from ordinary Chinese families. We just wanted to get a better future through our own hard work. Coming up, a look at potential changes to security at London's marathon. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. We're going to take a brief detour from the events here in Boston. Several weeks back, we launched a special series with our partners at the PBS program NOVA. It explores the continent of Australia. Today, we take a look at one of Australia's most iconic animals, the koala. The species is in trouble. Although koala populations are doing okay in some parts of Australia, in many areas their numbers are plummeting. And one reason is disease. Nova's Ari Daniel Shapiro tells us what's being done to help koalas survive a pair of epidemics. One of the most reliable places to find koalas in Australia these days is in the hospital. About 50 miles north of Brisbane, at the Australia Zoo Wildlife Hospital, a female koala is under a mild anesthetic. Those caring for her have given her the name Penny. Yeah, she's quite an old girl. I think she's over 10 years. That's veterinarian Amber Gillett. She's in charge of Penny's checkup today. Put some ultrasound gel in the pouch, and then we'll have a look on this ultrasound machine. 
She's checking Penny's bladder for symptoms of chlamydia. In people, chlamydia is a common sexually transmitted disease. A different strain infects koalas, but it too can be spread sexually, and it's causing a devastating epidemic. Gillett walks me outside, across a lawn to a series of open-air enclosures. These are our koala wards. Um, Basically, these are generally always full with koalas all year round. Last year, Gillett and her team treated about 300 koalas for chlamydia, females, males, and the little ones, called joeys. They can pick up chlamydia from their moms while suckling in the pouch. In some parts of Australia, koala infection rates are as high as 90%. I can certainly tell you that it's a major threat to our population. Chlamydia causes blindness and infertility and can be fatal. But it's not just chlamydia making koalas sick. Leukemia and lymphoma are increasingly common, too. The reason is something called koala retrovirus. Paul Young, a virologist at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, says it's a lot like HIV in humans in that it suppresses a koala's immune system. What we're looking at is a virus invading the um, population in real time. We're actually looking at it as we speak. He says every koala he's tested in the northern part of the species range has been infected, and the virus is gradually making its way south. Young says that initially the infection was probably transmitted from koala to koala through physical contact, but within the last century, the virus has managed to insert itself directly into koala sperm and eggs. So as soon as a koala is born, they've got very high levels of the virus, and it remains that way for the rest of their life. Between chlamydia and the retrovirus, koalas in many parts of Australia are in trouble. Fortunately, though, there's a small but committed army working to save them. I love everything about koalas, from their little furry ears down to the little poo that pops out of their bottoms. Vonda Grabowski has hand-raised about 40 orphaned koalas in her home since 1999. She and others like her call themselves koala carers. They ensure that the young joeys of sick mother koalas survive. Grabowski says it's not easy rearing these baby animals in their first year of life. Joeys are most active at night time, so you have to turn your day into night. And then, when they're a little older, you have to cut and collect fresh eucalyptus leaf, which can mean driving hours every day. If all goes well, the young koalas are eventually released back into the wild. I always investigate the sites where my joeys go. It's like a mother would. You wouldn't want to send your kid off to some strange place, would you? You'd check it out. So that's what I do as a good mum. Same thing goes for older animals. Adult koalas that are sick and treated at the hospital, if they get better and remain fertile, they're released back into the wild. And after that, some of them are still looked after by people like John Hanger. He's a wildlife biologist, and right now he's standing in a eucalyptus woodland outside Brisbane, unfurling an antenna. Hanger comes through here once a week to check on a handful of koalas. By tracking them and regularly monitoring them, we can certainly detect if they become ill again. If he finds a koala that needs additional medical attention, Hanger will bring it back to his clinic or the hospital for a workup. Some of the animals here have been fitted with radio collars. Hanger punches in the frequency for a collar on his receiver. We follow the signal and come to the base of a tall tree. Hanger points 20 feet up into the branches. The koala we've just tracked is a koala called Maggie. Oh, I see her really well up there. She's right in that kind of 90-degree fork in the tree, clinging to it. A couple years ago, Maggie ended up in the hospital. 
Her uterus was infected. She had chlamydia. But fortunately, they caught it early. She was given antibiotic treatment and that was effective in curing her of that infection. Her fertility was retained. And so far, everything looks good. She's had two joeys since then and hopefully she's got a a third one in the pouch as we speak. So she's a real success story. But long-term success in battling these diseases may only come if koalas can be prevented from getting sick in the first place. And that's where a team at the Queensland University of Technology enters the picture. Microbiologist Peter Timms opens a laboratory freezer that's kept extremely cold. This is minus 80 degrees. He pulls out a box of tiny vials that contain an experimental vaccine for koala chlamydia. The labs pursued it alongside a vaccine for chlamydia in humans, something that still needs a lot of work. Tim says preliminary research on the vaccine for koalas suggests it can produce an immune response that could protect the animals from becoming infected. He wants to start using the vaccine soon and has a couple of field trials planned. Now, vaccinating all the koalas in Australia, Tim's admits that's not likely. We don't see it being practical to find the last koala and the last tree out in the middle of Queensland. But thousands of koalas are already being handled each year at hospitals and other care facilities, and he'd like to see them vaccinated. Many of these koalas have been struck by cars or attacked by dogs. Others have been pushed off their land due to suburban sprawl. Tim says all of these threats add up to a dire future for the koalas, which makes it all the more important to vaccinate them against chlamydia and perhaps one day against the retrovirus too because maybe now we can make a real difference there that we weren't making before. You should try and pick some battles, I think, where you can win. Winning those battles against disease won't ensure the survival of koalas in the wild, but, he says, at least it's a start. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Brisbane. For more from Australia, watch PBS Tonight. Nova explores some bizarre life forms that evolved there half a billion years ago. Now, let's return to what we know about the investigation into the deadly bombings at the Boston Marathon on Monday. There are conflicting reports about a possible suspect in the case. Several news outlets are reporting that a security camera outside of the Lord & Taylor's department store showed a person carrying and then leaving a black bag at one of the bomb sites near the finish line. The bombs are believed to have been made out of pressure cookers, one packed with pellets, the other with nails. Authorities say they've recovered a piece of a pressure cooker and also a circuit board that may have been part of one of the bombs. Three people died in the bombing and more than 170 were wounded. Many remain hospitalized with severe injuries. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Ahead, tight security at Margaret Thatcher's funeral in London today. And officials there are reviewing procedures for Sunday's marathon. But this former police commander makes no promises. The price you pay in a free society for allowing free movement is that you are vulnerable to the kind of heinous people that want to do the kind of attacks that they've done in Boston. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. 
There was a big farewell today in London for Margaret Thatcher. The Queen attended the funeral service for the former British Prime Minister. New York Times reporter Sarah Lyall was on hand and tweeted that bells are pealing all over Westminster. Crowds are applauding Thatcher's coffin as it glides by. It was pretty amazing. No one really does pomp and circumstance like the British in these sorts of occasions. And just the, the music everywhere, the sight of the coffin being driven slowly along the streets in this gun carriage, British flag over it with this big white bouquet, and then this you know, crowd of people pouring in and sitting in St. Paul's Cathedral was pretty amazing. Sarah, as we mentioned, you live tweeted during the uh, funeral procession, noting the dramatic music and bells tolling its operatic Shakespearean Ben-Hurrian were there chariots? What, what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, there were just so many people. You know, you think of those movies with their cast of thousands, and just the amount of military personnel in these exotic uniforms and different hats from the different services, and just all the pomp and circumstance was incredible. And the music, you know, with sort of the bells of different churches pealing all down the streets. The other thing that was sort of noticeable was how Thatcher had planned most of it herself. So she had chosen the hymns, she chose the readings, she made it clear she didn't want a eulogy. She had her two grandchildren who both have American accents, having grown up in South Africa but then spent a lot of time in Texas. Hmm. They both did some reading, and there was sort of a lot of talk about how she, you know, even at the end was very big on details and big on controlling what was happening around her and what would happen about her. Not everyone was there to honor the coffin. One person tweeted there were boos and chants of scum as the cortege passed Ludgate Circus. The more classy turned their backs in silence. What did you see or hear of Thatcher's political opponents? There certainly were people holding up anti-Thatcher signs and some of these little protests and some of the people turning their back and yelling things out. But I didn't see anything beyond that at all. And the general mood was one of kind of respect and quiet as the procession went on. What impressed you about the uh, the speeches and tributes given by um, Margaret Thatcher's closest allies? Well, there weren't any in, in the cathedral at all. I mean, she had specifically said, or they said she specifically said, she didn't want it to be a political funeral. It wasn't a memorial service where people got up and talked about her legacy. It was a personal service about a dead woman being committed to God. So the emphasis was on that. There was no um, public address. There was just a religious address from the, the Bishop of London. And it talked a little bit about how she was this divisive figure, but it wasn't a day to talk about her as a divisive figure. It was a day to talk about her as a person. Did you notice any kind of increase in the security today for the funeral are you seeing anything as, as London looks ahead to the marathon this weekend? You know, London is a city that has been dealing with different sorts of terrorism for even longer than the kind of new breed of terrorism. So there was a lot of security. It didn't seem more than it would have been usually, but you may not always see it. The idea with the marathon is they are rethinking a little bit some of the protocols they have in place. I assume there'll be a lot more noticeable police presence, the sort of searching of things, and there's no garbage cans on the streets in most of London because of previous bouts of terrorism. So a lot of things that Americans wouldn't think to do, London has already done. New York Times reporter Sarah Lyle, she spoke with us from London. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good luck there in Boston. 
Retired Commander Bob Broadhurst was in charge of the policing operation for London's 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games. Commander Broadhurst, London's marathon is a huge event, more than 36,000 runners. Officials in London say they are reviewing security arrangements in the wake of what happened in Boston. What kind of revisions can you imagine might be under consideration now? Well, I think they'll be talking very closely to colleagues in the the States, uh, particularly the FBI. But there's not a lot to change. What you will be seeing is probably more police on the streets, a bit of a higher visible presence. They'll they'll up the search regime slightly. But of course, you, you can't legislate for a lone individual when you've got crowds of several thousands on the streets. You just can't search everything. And on that note, the talk here is of how difficult it is to secure uh, 26.2 miles of a race. But unlike the marathon here in Boston, which starts kind of out in the boondocks outside of Boston, London's course weaves and loops around uh, the city itself. Providing security on both sides of that sort of course sounds near impossible. Well, it is. It is near impossible. And of course, um, the price you pay in a free society for allowing free movement is that you are vulnerable to the kind of heinous people that want to do the kind of attacks that they've done in Boston. The bottom line for the police or any security service is unless you actually clear all the streets, keep all the people away and have the runners running for 26 miles on their own, you just cannot legislate against the kind of thing that happened in Boston. So you do everything you can, and the people of London, like the people of Boston, will have the fortitude to turn up and say, look, we're not going to give in to this kind of attack, we're going to run. It's a very, very small risk at the end of the day, and it's shocking that it's happened in Boston. Police services across the free world do their best to to stop this kind of attack. The bottom line is, if someone's really determined in a crowd of several thousands, it's going to happen. Is the biggest tactic, the biggest prevention, really boots on the ground on the day of, or is it intelligence leading up to the event? It starts with intelligence, um, and clearly intelligence has worked against the international terrorists, those who need to um, work together. Where intelligence tends to fall down is on the lone individual, the person with a grudge who's beavering away in their home, totally under the radar of the security services. That's everybody's worst nightmare, the lone wolf, as we've seen in attacks across the world in recent years. But certainly... Failing intelligence, and if there is no intelligence, as there was none in Boston or else, you know, your colleagues would have dealt with it, feet on the ground are the very best thing. People looking for the unusual behaviour, working with the public to make sure that people can't leave a bag unattended, and if they do, doing something with it. That's really the best effort you can put against this type of attack. Now, some of the security arrangements during the 2012 Olympics, like mounting missiles on the top of apartment buildings, sparked a public outcry. From your perspective, is there such a thing as too much security for an event like this? Yeah, of course there is. If you put too much security in, people don't feel safe. People don't want to turn up and run in the first instance. For the Olympic Games, I think we have to accept that the Olympics are, you know, they're a four yearly event and they're a global event. And the reason you put rockets on the ground and fighter jets in the air is a kind of international deterrent for someone that wants to come and ruin that event. The London Marathon, the Boston Marathon are much more local events. All right, they have a global reach on television, but they're actually local events. You're not going to be attacked by another nation for a marathon. So actually, rockets, jet aircraft, they're of no use whatsoever. All they're going to do is scare people and actually put people off coming. You know, these are free societies. The people come to the streets to be together and, you know, for the enjoyment and fun and competition of sport. And we must never give in to the terrorists by stopping that. Commander, has there ever been a serious security incident at a London marathon? Not at the marathon, no. Um, nothing along those levels. It's the, it's the usual mundane um, 
crowd control issues and, and the odd idiot who wants to jump out and take out an elite runner, uh, as we've seen at the Olympic Marathon. But, you know, it's always there in the background, and that's what the planning does its best to mitigate against. Are there any lessons that um, the police in London can take from what happened in Boston? Yeah, of course. I mean, maybe there are some issues. You know, I, I understand this happened near the finish line. Now, the finish line, as you say, in London is in a very iconic part of central London. Maybe there were some extra issues there. You, you, perhaps you stop people going into that particular area with bags so they can't place anything down. You up the search regime in that particular part of the route. But that then still leaves another 24, 25 miles um, unprotected. Again, I think it would come down to officers. The way we do it in London it is officers along the route adopt a part of the crowd. They'll be looking for people, talking to people, making sure people don't leave bags unattended or, or throw things into litter bins, all that type of stuff. Uh, it is very much in cooperation with the public, and I think you'll find what uh, the attack in Boston would have done. It would have focused the minds on the public as well, and I'd expect the police over here to have a lot more calls to deal with of people seeing you know, bags left lying around on their own, all those kinds of pressures that will just add to the, the policing security operation. Retired British Commander Bob Broadhurst was in charge of the policing operation for London's 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games. Thank you for joining us, sir. That's a pleasure. The federal immigration bill unveiled this week is already getting complaints from those on the left and right. The bipartisan group of senators who wrote it say that means they're doing something right. The bill would make it possible for illegal immigrants here to become U.S. citizens eventually. Most of the debate has centered on Latino immigrants. But there's another group whose ranks have ebbed and flowed, especially in New York, Irish immigrants. Many work in the construction trade and quite a few off the books. Inez Novacic reports from New York on how Irish construction workers view the immigration debate. You can't get more Irish in America than a Gaelic Games tournament on a Sunday afternoon in New York City. Gaelic Park is a 2,000-seat arena in the Bronx on the furthest uptown stop on the one subway train. It's in the heart of New York's Irish community. Over whistleblows and groans as players lunge into each other, every variety of the Irish accent fills the stadium. And this is nothing new, I'm told. There's players from all over Ireland playing it, you know, so a lot of different accents going on in the change room. It's pretty funny, you know. That's one of Gaelic Park's veteran players. Like most of his teammates on the field today, he works in construction. He's also here illegally, so he doesn't want to use his real name. Call me Lucy, he says. I just didn't go back, you know, I sort of fell in love with the culture, the place, the city, city life. That was ten years ago. And if you're asking how did he get by undocumented for ten years? The manager of the football team, he got, he got me, I was working for him, like the man, he was a, a contractor, construction, so um, I'm a carpenter, so he got me and I was, work, was working with him like for um, a few years. Lucy's is a story familiar to most Irish or Irish-American ears, and many Gaelic players here today tell a version of it. They come to America in search for work. They overstay their visas. They're helped by someone from the close-knit Irish community. A loosely organized interest group called the Irish Lobby for Immigration Reform estimates that 50,000 undocumented Irish live across America. 
Now, a different kind of story is on the cards for people like Lucy. If immigration reform passes and the proposed W visas for low-skilled workers are granted, that's how most most people get jobs out here is through, is through Gaelic football. Somebody who knows somebody who plays Gaelic football will always have worked for somebody. Lucy's fellow athlete is also an undocumented labourer. He moved to New York two years ago and has a daughter on the way. We'll call him Seamus. He says that the Irish word-of-mouth job search keeps his bills paid. Because we're undocumented, that's the only avenue we have. I play Irish football, and my manager, I work for him. That was it. It's not exactly straightforward, though. He warns. I pay a tax through a different name and a dif- different social number. I have a bank account. I drive. One day I could meet the wrong person or get pulled over for a busted tail or something and I'd be sent home. You know, that's how easy it is. The Irish have been coming to America since the early 19th century, usually in waves. If the economy in Ireland suffers, America is the first place they turn to in search for work. That's what happened in the 1980s, the last time large numbers of undocumented workers arrived here. Tim Devlin was one of them. Now he runs a construction business in Midtown Manhattan. I came here in 1984, started construction. I guess three days after I arrived here, and I worked my way up from the, working in the Bronx, like most people did, or Queens, all the way up to uh, 363 Seventh Avenue, basically. In other words, from working as a laborer to building things like skyscrapers in Manhattan. Today, Devlin's office is non-stop. I get time with him while he drives up to check on a construction site. He says he can't imagine living an undocumented life today. I don't even know how they even. I don't even know how they do it. To be honest with you, it's, it's got to be really, really, really tough. Because the regulations with the banks and the regulations with the government, and you have to have ID and you can't get a driver's license. I don't think you can get a driver's license now unless you uh, have some type of legal status. The site we visit has no Irish laborers, rather men from Latin America. It's dark inside this old gutted church in Queens. Drills and hammers on steel mute the sounds of Spanish. Devlin says that a temporary visa program for low-skilled workers, an initiative pushed by a group of senators, would benefit all of his employees. It'll take them out of the shadows, obviously, and it also is going to help the economy because uh, when these people all become legal, it's, uh, you're going to generate more tax revenue. So it's a plus-plus all the way, I believe. The Irish community has lived through and lobbied for several immigration bills since the 1980s. For a time, they won some success with increased visa types and quotas. Until 1996, the last time comprehensive immigration reform was signed into law. Although the community is buzzing about the prospect of immigration legislation now, the majority of those undocumented aren't exactly holding their breath. There's always hope, but at the same time, until something's concrete, concrete is written down, I don't think there's there's much point in getting carried away with it. For the world, I'm Inez Novacic in New York City. Remember 1979? Well, you should. Turns out it was an epic year. That's coming up on PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. 
As we heard, the funeral for Margaret Thatcher took place in London today, and the ceremony for the former British Prime Minister was almost at the level of a state funeral, but not quite. And as expected, her service attracted some protesters along the route. Journalists fond of clichés might say this was the end of an era. It's not. But a new book argues that the year of her election, 1979, was one of those epic turning points in history, like 1789, the year of the French Revolution. The book is called Strange Rebels, 1979 and the Birth of the 21st Century, and the author Christian Carl joins us now. Christian, um, turning point in history seems a pretty strong claim. What makes uh, 1979 so special? I would argue that 1979 is special precisely because it's it's a really big turning point. It it may not have seemed so obvious at the time, but when you consider the things that happened, I think it qualifies. My book covers several stories, the Iranian Revolution, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. You mentioned Mrs. Thatcher. I also write about Pope John Paul's first visit as Pope to Poland and the start of economic reform in China. And I think if you take all these things together, you can see that this really marks a very important turning point in 20th century history. I would argue that it marks the beginning of a kind of conservative era in global politics that's driven by markets on the one hand and religion on the other. Since she was laid to rest today, we should spend a minute on Margaret Thatcher. Um, How central was she to making 1979 a turning point? Well, of course, as we all know, her legacy is still deeply divisive. Um, that she changed Britain fundamentally. I think about that, there can be no dispute. Uh, She played an enormous role. Britain today is a fundamentally different place. She played a very, very important role when it came to changing the way that the world talked and thought about economic issues. And this market-oriented world that we live in today, I think, owes quite quite a deal to her. Now, the remarkable thing, as you alluded to, is how unremarkable 1979 seems. There are years when one great thing happened, and we remember those years. But so much went on in this uh, in this one little year. That's exactly right. I think the start of Chinese economic reform is a, is a great example because at the time we understood that something was going on in China that was kind of important. You know, Mao had died. This new leader, Deng Xiaoping, had come to power, and he clearly wanted to open China up and do a lot of things differently. But there was just no way you could have foreseen how dramatic the consequences of his economic reform program were going to be if no one would have dared to think of China becoming a a capitalist country. Now, uh, with all due respect, Christian Carl, um, how is it that you're the only guy who who put this all together and made uh, 1979 the big year that it is? (laughs) <laughs> that's a that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, well, in your book, so many things happened in that year. It, it seems only natural for people to put them together. Yeah. Well, I think some other people have observed this. Uh, the historian Neil Ferguson, with whom I don't always agree about everything, has noted that 1979 was a very important year. Um, Actually, one of the people who influenced me most when I was writing this book was Karen Armstrong, the historian of religion, who pointed out that 1979 was not only the year that the Islamic Revolution took place in Iran, but it was also the year when the moral majority was formed in the United States, right? The evangelical political action group that helped to elect Ronald Reagan in 1980. And it was also the year that one of the first religious parties was elected to parliament in Israel. So it's very striking when you consider that 
this revival of religion was not happening only in the Islamic world, but also in other parts of the world as well. And this is one of the things that got me very interested in this subject. So perhaps I've put together a couple of things that other people noticed, but I, I don't think I'm the first one to come across this. Christian, we're wondering if there's a particular song you can think of that um, that you might recommend from 1979 that you think sort of personifies that year. Uh, I think it would be Blondie. Ooh, which one? Um, I think it's Heart of Glass. If I'm not mistaken, that was that was 1979. And why that one? Um, just it's it's great. It's the new romantics. You know, it has that feel, that sort of new wavy post punk feel which is exactly the feeling of the period. I mean, the other one you could take, if you really want to go for it, you know, because we're talking about religion, you could take The Bright Side of Life from Monty Python's <laughs> Life of Brian, because that's a 1979 movie. But uh, go with, I like Blondie a lot, and I think The Clash, um, I think they're big, I think London Calling came out in 1979. And of course, that's a great, you know, that's a great anthem for the Thatcherite period. You know, this kind of gritty... Uh, confrontational political stuff that was in the air. Christian Carl is author of Strange Rebels 1979 and the Birth of the 21st Century. Christian, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aaron. And finally, flags are also flying at half-mast today on the island of Cape Breton. They're there to honor local singer Rita McNeil. She died last night at the age of 68. McNeil sold out shows around the world and won numerous Juno Awards, Canada's Grammys. But she stayed connected to the coal-mining country of Cape Breton. One of her biggest hits was a tune called Working Man, a tribute to Cape Breton miners. It's a working man I am And I've been down underground And I swear to God If I ever see the sun Or for any length of time I can hold it in my mind Rita McNeil was one of Canada's best-known singer-songwriters. In the 1990s, she hosted a variety show on TV called Rita and Friends. Fans loved her for her down-to-earth charm, and they also appreciated her candor in talking about some of her personal challenges, including sexual abuse and teen pregnancy. Here she is on a Canadian talk show. Sometimes the clouds were really, really thick, and I wasn't ever sure, but uh, I've been born a very very much an optimist and I always uh, kept looking for the better and I knew it was there. We'll close with one more song by Rita McNeil, Flying on Your Own. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Aaron Schachter. Thanks for listening.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.